I shall therefore assume that the reader would rather be happy than unhappy. Whether I can help him to realize this wish, I do not know. But at any rate, the attempt can do no harm. Welcome to Dog-Eared and Crack, the podcast where we each recommend a book for the other and then play literary critic. Our tastes widely differ, so some of our postmortems may be replete with vacuous silence and frictional argument. Sometimes you may hear nothing more than the sound of a paperback hitting the side of a wall as one of us expresses our lack of enjoyment at the other's choice in reading material. But fortunately, in all cases, for you, the podcast listener, no reading is required. I'm Jay. And I'm Phil. And this week, we're discussing The Conquest of Happiness by Bertrand Russell, published in 1930. Before we talk about what you thought about the book, why don't you introduce us to it and tell us a bit about the writer, Bertrand Russell. Well, Bertrand Russell's an amazing guy. Um, He was born in 1872, died in 1970, and he had a very rich and, and full life. He was a philosopher, a logician. He had a strong interest in mathematics. He revolutionized the study of logic. He was an atheist, a pacifist, an educator, and I guess a a self-help book writer, which I did not know. Um, He was also a guy who really lived his morals and and ethics. He spent six months in jail during the First World War for his pacifism. He spent another week in jail in in the 60s for protesting the, the Vietnam War. And it cost him. He lost a teaching job at Cambridge. I lost one at the City University of New York, and he was a prolific writer. At the same time, he wrote lots and won the Nobel Prize in literature. It's 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 quite a CV. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it, that all of his advancements in mathematics and logic, and really his big reward was the Nobel Prize, and that was in literature. And did you uh, did you read that he uh, his comments about being imprisoned were that he actually really enjoyed it because it gave him plenty of time to read and write. Yes, I think he he wrote one of his books while he was while he was in prison. I uh, I was actually interested to to hear that as well that he he was a world traveler, but he actually met Vladimir Lenin and uh, in 1920, which uh, formed a lot of his views about communism, and of course this was prior to Stalin and and kind of the deterioration of that system. But he uh, that would have been quite the meeting of the minds. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine. My dad was a, a Russell fan, so I did know about him, um, but I'd never actually read any of his books other than Why I Am Not a Christian, which I read back when I was in in Sejap or in university. The other thing about, which I, I don't know if you know this, but did you know he has a Nova Scotia connection? No, really. Does it involve lobsters? <laughs> <laughs> Doing your bit for Tourism Nova Scotia there. <laughs> In in 1955, so you know, early in the in the Cold War, he was a pacifist. So he and Albert Einstein signed a uh, manifesto called the the Russell Einstein Manifesto, and it called for an end to nuclear weapons and for talk, you know, a nonpartisan way for um, the different sides in the Cold War to meet. And they proposed an international conference. It would be non-political, non-partisan to promote peace in the world. And that became the Pugwash Conference, which took place for many, many years in Pugwash, Nova Scotia. 
and um, they actually won the Nobel Prize. There's another Nobel Prize. You can if you if you take a road trip to Pugwash, I recommend visiting. It's called Thinker's Lodge. Beautiful place, and they've got the Nobel Prize on view there. Really? Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. You know, Phil, we haven't really talked about kind of how this book is structured. And are you able to kind of summarize for the listener kind of how this how this thing is laid out? Yeah. So The Conquest of Happiness, it's, it's not a very long book. It's divided into two sections. So in the first, Russell looks at the causes of unhappiness. And in the second section, he looks at what leads to happiness. So very simple and straightforward. Um, some things fall into both categories, like work, for instance, can be a cause of unhappiness, but also happiness. Yeah. And I, I, can, I can picture people listening in and saying, well, why, what does a 90-year-old book really have to give us? And um, it's funny because some of the ideas may be dated, but there is actually an amazing amount of material in this book that it's, it's unsurprisingly more relevant today than ever. There's a quote I really like. It goes, you can get away from envy by enjoying the pleasures that come your way, by doing the work that you have to do, and by avoiding comparisons with those whom you imagine, perhaps quite falsely, to be more fortunate than yourself. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that quote does seem very relevant still, which I guess, you know, I suspect I know the answer to this, but why did you want me to read the book? This has become one of my favorite books. Um, but I thought what it would really be interesting to you is to see kind of these uh, precise observations about life and that arguably still hold some truth today. And I thought that would be worthwhile and having a discussion about those those beliefs that he had. I like the book because it's approachable. His philosophy is in a language that is simple, but yet at the same time, I found myself looking upward. But the language is ostensibly aimed at a non-philosopher and the reader is anyone and everyone. And I thought we could just have a great kind of conversation about some of these ideas. For example, the book is admittedly somewhat dated. So the book was copyrighted in 1930. And um, I kind of had to keep flipping back to the front of the book where the to see the copyright and remind myself of that. Because the ideas, some of them are dated. Some of them have a Victorian attitude towards the differences, for example, between men and women. And I'm wondering if you found that distracting. Or was it merely brushed aside in a quest for value? You know, I had the same experience as you. I think I went back probably three or four times to check the copyright page. Uh, maybe for the opposite reason from you. Like, uh, obviously, yes, some of it is dated, but some of it is quite progressive, too. So there were a few things where, you know, I, I did kept going back and thinking, was this really 1930? I was willing, I don't know if I'd say I'm willing to give him a pass. There were definitely a few things that really made me cringe, um, especially when he overgeneralizes about things he doesn't know much about. So he'll talk about, he has like these very old colonial ideas about Eastern religions in India, for instance, you know, so it was actually um, a classic sort of um, critique and uh, one of the reasons that Indians were inferior to the British in the British colonial era was that, you know, they were very fatalistic. They didn't really care about the real world and, you know, whether their children lived or died because they believed in karma and fate. And so they were passive. So, you know, some of those attitudes come up. And when he talks about, um, you know, how the savage hunts and that, and that sort of thing, definitely, definitely cringeworthy. But it, it, there, was, there was enough that, that I found 
helpful, useful, interesting, and he did have those more progressive uh, ideas as well. That that I you know I wasn't willing to just toss the whole thing and think like, oh God, this guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. There's there's no argument that that he some of his ideas are archaic and totally agree with you on some of the, the sentiment towards the cringeworthiness of certain certain passages. But there's ideas that are strong. For example, when he talks about envy, I feel he really gets right to kind of the heart of, he appeals to the highest ego in, in, in all of us. And, and he, so he argues that it's good to aspire and to be inspired by others. But he reminds the reader that they, they should not really compare themselves to others. A great quote here, quote is, if you desire glory, you may envy Napoleon, but Napoleon envied Caesar. Caesar envied Alexander, and Alexander, I dare say, envied Hercules, who never existed. You cannot therefore get away from envy by means of success alone, for there will always be in history or legend some person even more successful than you are. And it's an ideology that's recurring in his book. It's this idea of the pursue the next best thing is in itself all that can be enjoyed, because once we attain that which we seek, we only want more or something different. So we're continually on to the next best thing, which is just the trap. You know, this is maybe a side note, but it reminds me of something Frank Zappa said, <laughs> which was to never stake your reputation on being the fastest guitarist, because no matter how fast you play, someone else is going to come along who plays faster. I thought you were going to give the quote where he's asked why he snorted a mountain of Coke, and he said, because it was there. <laughs> I, I didn't know that one. Oh, I I thought I heard that from you in high school. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't remember it. <laughs> it's a, I don't know. <laughs> My impression, Phil, is that Russell's opinions are really just that. They're merely that, it, opinions. And so there's no real evidence to support any of his ideas, even despite how intuitive they might appear. So having said that, do you find that some of his ideas still hold merit? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean... You know, I don't read a book like this looking for evidence. In fact, I may be happier if I don't get evidence. I'm happy to just have, you know, somebody share their views and 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 go along with them. Um, you know, in 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 Russell's case, in in the conquest of happiness, there were a few things that that really resonated with me. So he talks a lot about, you know, one of the keys to happiness being actually not focusing. Well, not focusing on just one thing. So, for instance, getting caught up in work, that you need a, a fuller, rounder life. It, it struck me in the beginning when he said that you shouldn't focus too much attention on yourself because that runs counter to a lot of what we think today that introspection is good and it's a good idea, you know, like mindfulness, meditation, whatever, to kind of understand your emotions, understand where you're coming from. I was a bit thrown when Russell said not to spend too much time looking inward. I wasn't sure I agreed with that, but I, I think I get what he meant, which was to have outer interests and not be completely self-absorbed, which you know seems like seems like good advice for anybody. Um, and, and the other thing that I also appreciated, just to go back to the whether it's it's dated or not, is that while he writes about the individual, he does make it clear that 
you know, the individual exists in a society and there are social conditions that, you know, if there's mass poverty, it's harder to be happy, for instance. So that, you know, it's not a book about um, creating, you know, better social conditions, but it's a book that recognizes that you need those to be happy. I, I was particularly struck about this when he talks about men and women, because he does a lot of the men are more like this, women are more like that. But at the same time, you know, he'll say, he'll talk about women's careers and how their careers are hindered because they can't get proper childcare. So once they have children, they're home raising them and how much better it would be for everybody if there was better childcare. Like that was 90 years ago. And we're still talking about that issue today. Yeah. It's one I don't think we'll, uh, we'll resolve anytime soon. I uh, have been doing quite a bit of reading on psychological flow. And I think to your point about the um, self-reflection and, and the fact that he he pointedly suggests the reader should kind of avoid avoid that in large amounts, and I think what he's getting at is is because he also talks about the importance of work, and he talks about the value in having something, and I believe he's talking about purpose as well. But when we talk about psychological flow, it's this sense of of rather than thinking through problems, um, rather than thinking about your life, it's about reaching this kind of happiness by ostensibly being involved in a task where it's both challenging and yet not overwhelming. So it's this golden mean, if you, if you will, uh, where the task at hand is something that is a goal-oriented, provides a challenge, and at the same time, isn't um, too complicated and overwhelming and, and impossible to, to accomplish. And when you're involved in that, the mind actually settles down into something which is akin to, they call it flow. Um, you can call it being in the zone or whatever you want to describe it as. But it's this idea of, of it creates something in the mind, um, produces endorphins in the body, and really provides kind of that level of happiness, which is kind of what, I mean, if I had to reword his book, I would call it kind of a practical guide to happiness because he talks about things that aren't, don't require years of study. They're really just about little tweaks, little shifts in the way you, way you uh, live your life. And there's a chapter in particular, um, a story involving peacocks. Do you remember that story? Yeah, I do. The subject is envy, and Bertrand Russell tells a story about, he imagines, he asks the reader to imagine, and, and this is typical Russell sarcastic prose, and you have to kind of recognize that as you're reading it, otherwise it becomes a nonsensical story. But he he asks the reader to imagine what would happen if if peacocks went around admiring each other's tails. And he describes him as a very peaceful bird. And the reason he says that, and this is my understanding of his story, is that because they don't have envy towards others, that they feel that they're, they themselves have the best tail in the world and that makes them happy. Not necessarily narcissistic or arrogant, but he kind of talks about this idea that if they were envious of the other peacocks and they're acting like humans, instead of taking pride in their appearance, the jealousy would cause them just great unhappiness. Is that your take on it as well? I caved and got a New Yorker subscription early in the pandemic, and the new issue came the other day, and there was a cartoon with peacocks in it. 
Uh, so it shows two peacocks on uh, like a Zoom call, and one of them has its tail all fanned out, and the other doesn't. And the one who doesn't says, "I thought we agreed we weren't dressing up for meetings." That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so I okay, we're digressing. This is exactly the kind of podcast I hate listening to, and I started it. All right, I got I've got another quote for you. Um, a man who is happy in his marriage and his children is not likely to feel much envy of other men because of their greater wealth or success, so long as he has enough to bring up his children in what he feels to be the right way. Now, would you, Phil, agree or disagree with this idea? It sounds like good advice to me. I mean, we all know the guys who are completely wrapped up in their work and then are shocked when... Like they have no relationship with their kids or their partners leave them because um, they never saw it coming because they were completely wrapped up in their work. You know, I am not a particularly ambitious person. Like I worked at home most of my career and I was frustrated doing it when my kids were around sometimes, but I was also just happy to be around. I've had I've had moments in my life, I guess this ties back into envy, you know, where I compare myself to other freelance writers, like they're doing better than me. Maybe I would have done better if I lived in Toronto. Would I want to live in Toronto? I mean, I think having a solid home life always just seemed a little more important to me. And, um, you know, I was having this conversation with someone and I said something about like, well, I'm a pretty good writer. And they said, well, you know, you could kind of, you know, you could think of yourself more positively than that. And I said, I'm, I'm happy being a pretty good writer. <laughs> like, that, that's okay with me. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, I'm not trying to say I was a great parent because I know, you know, I've had my issues too. But I do think that's one of those things Russell is progressive about because how many men in his era would be writing? He writes a lot about the importance of family and the importance of raising your kids. It's its one of the themes that runs through the, the book, the man, right? Phil, the man was married three times. I think he was just, he had a lot of practice. <laughs> That's a good point. So, Phil, um, I've been talking a lot in terms of quotes. I've been reading quotes. Do you have a notable quote from The Conquest of Happiness? Yeah, you know, I was I was kind of surprised and 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 delighted to see that he had a quote about baseball. I was I was I was thinking of that one, but there is another one that I really like that I'm going to read instead. The, the baseball quote was essentially about a, a, an American writer who he'd met who he thought was very gloomy, but then when the baseball scores came on the radio, he perked up. But this is a quote from the section on boredom and excitement. And, and it's about children. And, and one of the things that struck me is you could you could imagine someone writing almost this exact quote today only Instead of where Russell talks about theater, you know, replace the theater with iPad or, or phone or something. So here's the quote. The capacity to endure a more or less monotonous life is one which should be acquired in childhood. 
Modern parents are greatly to blame in this respect. They provide their children with far too many passive amusements, such as shows and good things to eat, and they do not realize the importance to a child of having one day like another, except, of course, for somewhat rare occasions. The pleasures of childhood should in the main be such as the child extracts himself from his environment by means of some effort and inventiveness. Pleasures which are exciting and at the same time involve no physical exertion, such, for example, as the theater, should occur very rarely. The excitement is in the nature of a drug, of which more and more will come to be required, and the physical passivity during the excitement is contrary to instinct. A child develops best when, like a young plant, he is left undisturbed in the same soil. I like that. I like that quote. Um, except for putting children in the soil, it just seems wrong. Um, but regardless, I like this idea of boredom that he's talking about it, and it shouldn't be avoided as a natural state. And distracting oneself with diversions really only acts as a temporary end to that boredom. And uh, I'd even go further and say that it applies to adults more than we realize how few of us at the end of the day, instead of indulging a creative hobby, we just saturate our thoughts with the mindless machinations of the latest episode of some new Netflix series. And then we go to sleep and get up and do the same thing again the next day. And there's really no accessing that part of the brain that's only really forced to, to, to work when we have that feeling of, of boredom. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. Also kind of interesting. We're talking about this since our last book was called The Utility of Boredom. But Russell gets into that in the, in the section on work too, that you, know, you don't want your life to be exciting all the time. It's exhausting. You know, you want to have, I think we're like dogs. You want to have some kind of routine that you're familiar with. I, I totally would have rejected this like when I was, say, in my 20s, by the way, but that you want to have some kind of routine that you're comfortable with, but with some sort of novelty, newness, excitement as well, right? If it's just, and, and, and that within that, we have to make space for, for times when things don't really happen and, and, and that's okay, right? I've got one last quote, Phil, before we start to wrap this up and, and score this book. And it has to, it's Russell saying something inadvertently about our own modern world. And here's the quote. I think that in general, apart from expert opinion, there is too much respect paid to the opinion of others, both in great matters and in small ones. One should respect public opinion insofar as is necessary to avoid starvation and to keep out of prison. But anything that goes beyond this is voluntary submission to an unnecessary tyranny and is likely to interfere with happiness in all kinds of ways. So when I read that, almost immediately, I could only think of social media, how it's not only made more people suffer from fear of public opinion, but has ironically empowered them and ensured that they continue to remain in that fleeting public sentiment. What were your thoughts? I think there's a couple of sides to this. Also interesting, the thing he says about prison, considering that he, uh, he, spent, time, he spent time there himself. On the one hand, I agree, right? If you live your life trying to please others, you know, ultimately that is a route to unhappiness. At the same time, I think people who loudly proclaim that they don't care about the opinions of others tend to be assholes. So I, I think the truth lies somewhere 
in between that, right? That we shouldn't pay too much attention to what others around us think. But at the same time, we shouldn't kind of be aggressive about not caring what they think. It it ties in a little bit to his chapter, maybe obliquely to his chapter on persecution mania, which is one of the causes of unhappiness when when people feel that others have it in for them. And, you know, Russell says, really, most people aren't spending that much time thinking about you. No, I know. Um, so, you know, I think an over-reliance on what others think is in some way related to a sense that others have it in for you because for whatever reason, you know, he has a quote about my play is brilliant and why is nobody producing it? What could be the possible reason for this? You know, so at a certain point, it may be possible that your play just sucks. It may be that people have it in for you and you need to kind of figure out which it is. I think the same applies. You know, there's reasons we have public well, public opinion, the opinions of, I think the opinions of those we care about and those close to us should be important to us, which doesn't mean we always have to go along with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And not, not to date myself, but I almost feel like Russell, in other words, is saying, just get over yourself. You're not all that and a bag of chips. It's this idea where he's talking about um, people taking themselves too seriously and really they're the ones getting hurt. And I think that kind of, to me, that sums it up. Now, would this book be best read with a mug of cold draft beer, a glass of wine, or a tumbler of scotch? What, what beverage? I think given that Russell was an aristocrat, I would have to go with the scotch. Maybe a nice peaty, uh, maybe a nice peaty scotch. I think he'd agree with you. I think uh, for a 98-year-old man, he would uh, absolutely love a glass of scotch right now if he's still with us. We've come to the part where we rate the book, and I've, I've changed the rating system scale slightly, Phil. If I can... Um, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to take you through it. Please. All right. Five stars is engaging. Who knew the sex life of an amoeba could be so gripping? Four stars is moving. Three stars. The book is deceivingly informative. It's the perfect book for the beach as it looks important in pressing everyone who walks by and yet still holds your attention. Now, two stars. Hmm, starting to get self-involved and dense. And one star. It's incomprehensible. It's the perfect book to be left on the beach, at least until the tide comes in to take it out to sea. Now, how would you rate The Conquest of Happiness by Bertrand Russell? I would say, for me, it's a solid three and a half. Um, it, 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 it didn't grip me, but I found it helpful, interesting, useful. In some ways, it's... A, it's in some ways, it's an interesting artifact of its time, but it also has contemporary value. I was actually, I was quite surprised, pleasantly surprised by it. I'm glad you went through it and read it. And as I was rereading it, I, I realized that the language was good, solid, but the writing was a bit dry in, in, in points. And there were areas that were fairly cringy. Were you thinking Phil's going to read this quote from the Chinaman and throw it against the wall? I felt like there would be a letter to the editor or something going on or a a, uh, a silent protest outside my house. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Because uh, we both realized the book is is dated. And, and 
and it some of the areas have not aged well and it's not that he was um and this this time it, he was actually and ironically he was more enlightened he was more woke than anyone at really at his in his time period um and for that and despite the fact that he was um writing from a perspective of wealth and luxury i put those aside and and in, in fact i'm actually kind of grateful that he did because in living that life of luxury i think he had more time to really contemplate this than those of us who are just working every day and really don't have time to sit down and put down those thoughts and the thoughts he did put down i i believe still carry value even today and so in that context i would rate it five stars for myself um and i'm glad that you read it phil and i'm glad that you um some of it did resonate with you yeah for sure so next up jay we have a book i've recommended for you um the transmigration of timothy archer by philip k dick i've read this book a few times but it's probably been 10 years since the last time so i'm looking forward to revisiting it and also to seeing what you think of it yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. Now, this is going to be our um, our second of the fiction series. We've just finished a non-fiction series, and so we're going to flip back and forth where each of us recommends a book to the other. One will be, we'll do fiction, um, and then I've got one for you after that called Ham and Rye by Charles Bukowski. And just a quick note, if you're listening, if you like the podcast, leave us a review, leave us a rating. That's always helpful. And it allows people to find us more easily. All right. See you next week.